Amen. Such a special treat to have Danny Donnelly with us. He's one of my favorite people in the world, so blessing to have him lead us in our worship. So this morning we're continuing in our Verses for Life study. We've been going through, picking out certain verses that we think, first of all, we think you should memorize scripture. It's an important discipline, puts God's word in there so that you can carry it with you and think about it. But then the question is, well, which verses? And so each week we take another verse or a few verses that we think this is one that's super important for you to really have ingrained in your consciousness, to really reflect on, to meditate on, to think about and consider. And so that's the Verses for Life series that we are in the middle. I don't know if we're in the middle of it because I haven't decided how far it's going to go, but... but, uh, It's been, I've really enjoyed it so far. It's been a blessing. Today, the verse that we're going to look at comes from the prophet Micah. Micah is an Old Testament minor prophet. He's, they categorize prophets as being pre-exilic, meaning before they went into exile, or exilic, meaning during exile, or post-exilic, meaning after. Well, he's a pre-exilic prophet. The children of Israel were still free at this time. The Assyrians haven't taken the northern tribes away. The Babylonians haven't taken the southern tribes away. Micah's writing about the same time. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. So you're talking about in the you know, 700 plus years before Jesus came that Micah is writing this book. The children of Israel were a mess by this time. It's why they ended up just completely falling apart and going into captivity. But the prophets were just endlessly letting them know how they were messing up, how they were destroying everything that God wanted them to have. And so these prophets can be kind of depressing when you read them because they can seem really negative in a lot of ways. And Micah seems to focus most of his attention in this short book at addressing how the religious establishment and the political establishment are both coming short because, and he says that they're prostituting themselves, but it's the idea that government and religion are now all about money. They're trying to maneuver people, manipulate them, trying to get as much as they can from them, and they just turn the worship of God and the leading of the nation into basically just business. Now, thank God we don't live in a time like that, but they did. And so Micah addresses it, their their pride, their thinking that they're so fancy. And as he addresses them, they become concerned. And so we're going to be in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. You might be familiar with the verse. It's a great verse. But, but in the beginning of the chapter, he, the people are like going, what do we need to do? We, we want to fix things. We don't want the judgment that's going to come. You're telling us it's going to fall apart. What do we do? And they're saying, do we need to give you more money? Do we need to make more sacrifices to you? Do we, and shockingly, they even say, 
in the beginning of this chapter that if we sacrifice your children, our children, will that help? Like what? But see, once you turn life into, once you sell it out completely as this, this, this moral compromise, then of course children get sacrificed first. So they were more than willing to sacrifice children even as so many people today are as well. Let's just put them out of the way, they're an inconvenience. So they're offering to sacrifice children to God. And so Micah in, now in the middle of it, it's not all dark because back in chapter five, he prophesied when Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But it says he's going to be born in Bethlehem, this podunk town, this place that's just in the ghetto. It's a dump. Believe it or not, that's where Messiah is going to come. And he's making the point because they would think if Messiah comes, it's going to be a great show. It's going to be awesome. We need to, maybe we need to spiff up the temple a little bit more so that it's appropriate. And they're going, you don't understand. When Messiah comes, he's coming to the ghetto. He's coming to Bethlehem. But what an amazing prophecy that he nailed down and what God had to do in order to fulfill that prophecy is a whole other story. But now we come to Micah 6, verse 8. And he says, he has shown you, that is, God's already told you, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires from you. You're saying like, God, what do you want? What more can we do? You already know. He's already shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And he says, I'll break it down this way. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So he goes, it's really this. He's shown you, oh man, what God wants from you, what's good and what he's requiring of you. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So that sounds pretty simple. When you try to live it out, it's not so simple. It, of course, starts with justice. Justice means doing the right thing. Now, the word was used a lot in, in jurisprudence to and the concept of being just is throughout scripture because justice is kind of like, in order to do the right thing, you need to be skeptical of what you might think is the right thing. You're thinking that what you're doing is something that God is impressed by and he's not impressed by it at all. You need to hear from him in order to know what the right thing to do is. And so he says, start with that. Now, it seems simplistic. Okay, God, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And he goes, well, let's start with doing what's right. And you're like, duh. Yeah, I mean, I really do. I want to do what's right. Really? James said, if you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, that's a sin to you. So instead of worrying about what's right about all kinds of other things, how about the things that you know this is what you're supposed to do? So to do what's right. To, to, and along with what's right, the concept is also 
to do what's fair, to do what it is that, and this is being, you know, responding to God, to others, to yourself. How do I do what's right for me, really? Because God's word knows what's best for me. When, when the scripture talks about sin, the whole idea of sin is when you do something that's going to ruin you, when you do something that isn't good for you, when you do something that allows you to settle for something less than God's best. So doing justice involves I need to do what I'm supposed to do. It ends up doing the right thing, ends up being you know, best for you, best for everyone else, and best for God. But it's not always easy to know what the right thing is, but then especially it becomes complicated to actually do it once you do know. And I think, I think it was Mark Twain who said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. And I think Micah would agree with Twain that why don't you worry about what you do know? What is it that you're supposed to be doing in the most broad general terms possible? Are you doing the obvious things that he tells you to do? Are you committed to doing the right thing? And a lot of times when people are like, I really need to know God's will. But then you have to ask, okay, so if God tells you what his will is, are you going to do it? And you go, I don't know, it depends on what it is. A lot of times that's the way we approach things. I, sometimes when I'm counseling somebody and, and they'll say, oh, pastor, I really need you to pray for me that I'll know what God wants me to do. And sometimes I mess with them and I go, you actually already know what he wants you to do, right? And they're like, how did you know? <laughs> it's because I'm human too. I understand. It isn't so tricky to know what he wants us to do. The question is, what are you going to do with it? I was talking to a gal this week who she was struggling with. I've known her for years. And she had um, been divorced from a husband. And now she's living with a guy. And her ex-husband is telling her, we're still married before God. And you're supposed to come back to me, which the Bible says that you should never do that. Don't, once you leave you don't go back. It's not going to get better when you do that. But, but once you're with somebody else. But so I go, and then she was going, now this guy, we're, I really, I'm afraid of marriage now because of what I've been through. But boy, we're really, you know, committing ourselves before. Do, do you think that God considers us married, even though we haven't actually gone and done that legally? And I, go, I said, well, no, I, I said, uh, First of all, no, you're not still married to your ex-husband. You're divorced. It's over. That's an end. Um, and she goes, oh, thank God. <laughs> and I go, but God doesn't consider what you have now to be a marriage either. And she's like, well, it's still a relief. I said, well, I'm glad I can encourage you that you're not an adulterer. You're just a fornicator. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> she's like, well, when you put it that way. Sorry. But again, it has to come down to, do you believe what God says? Are you willing to do what he wants you to do? And over and over again, I've seen people trash their lives when they would tell you, I know God's word says this, but I'm just not going to do it. Right now, I just don't have it in me. I'm going to do this instead. 
And so Micah's going, you want God's will? You first have to ask yourself, are you actually willing to do what he tells you to do? Are you going to do the right thing? Or are you going to make compromises? Are you going to, in some way, you know, just decide that, well, we'll see what happens. I'm going to wing it. I'm just taking it one day at a time. No, you will never, you can always, see, you give yourself enough time, you can talk yourself into anything. But if you have to answer that simple question, what does God tell me to do? You do it or you don't do it. You play with things. What you do is set yourself up for damage. You end up destroying your life, destroying everything about who you are because once you begin to establish a precedent that there are some things that you don't have to do what God says, then you just decide, okay, which are the important things? And quite often the most important issue is will you do the thing that's hard that he tells you to do? It's, it's all about being fair. Now, again, this concept of justice, woven into it, it's so important that we understand. You, if you want justice, you start with the idea that I might be wrong. You cannot approach a situation by deciding that you already are right and now how are you going to judge other people or how are you going to defend yourself or how do you make this work or how can I justify this and make it right? No, the only way to be fair, the only way to be just, the only way to do justice is to go, I'm thinking I could be wrong because that's what allows us to approach the possibility that there's something different that I could be doing than what I'm doing right now. Again, you can make all the excuses you want, but doing justice, doing, doing what's right, doing justly, is something that involves, I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to make exceptions. I'm going to obey what God tells me to do. If you don't have that, you don't have anything and you end up spiraling down a hole from which it's really hard to extricate yourself once you establish the precedent that I might do some things. I might do as well if I like it. If I don't feel like it, I don't. So Micah says, what part of don't do what God tells you not to do and do what he tells you to do do you not understand? You're destroying your faith. You're destroying your nation you're destroying your lives, you're destroying the next generation. Ultimately, you're going to be overthrown by other powers and the temple's going to be destroyed. And he predicts that, you know, way before it happened, um, hundreds of years before it happened. But he goes, it all comes back to the first thing is, are you going to do what's right when it comes down to it? Do justly. Seems obvious but it's anything but easy because we're not all convinced that if I know what's right, I'll do it. And again, that's James. If you know what to do and you don't do it, that's called sin. That's called falling short of the glory of God. So Micah says, do the right thing. Do justly. But then he says, love mercy. Now, 
We use, mercy probably isn't honestly the best translation for this Hebrew word, chesed. It's uh, it, probably a better translation. Most other translations translate it kindness, and that's probably closer to, when we think of mercy, we think of you deserve judgment, but you get a break. But that may be a concept that might be sort of involved in it, but you know, in reality, and I think the New King James translated it kindness because they wanted to stay with what the King James had done, which again, that, you know, they translated it you know, to you know, do justice, love mercy, because mercy was their concept. Mercy didn't always have the connotation of you don't get judged when you deserve it. It kind of got blurred in. The word really means to treat people like family. To, that's why kindness, kinship, you know, that word refers to treating people well, treating people nicely. Now, if you have a messed up family, treating people like family may not be something that you even want to do. But think of the ideal of what family ought to be in a perfect world. And ultimately, he says, I want you to treat each other kindly. I want you to treat each other mercifully. And that's why Jesus, when he said, you can summarize the whole law, love God, love people. But doing, once you're committed to doing the right thing, now it becomes much simpler in your connections with people to say, I want to treat you well. I want to be kind to you. I want to be nice to you. Now, not everyone is that way. And not everyone even reciprocates or appreciates it. I think a lot of times we stop being nice to people when we're nice to enough people and they're not nice back, and then we just go, forget that. That doesn't work. Being nice to people is not in order to make them be nice to you. See, this isn't about how you can have things the way you want it, as we're going to say when he tells us to walk humbly. But we are nice because... God has been nice to us because he shows mercy, kindness. He wants to be family to us and we have really nothing to offer him that in any way there is anything in it for him. So what he wants from us is to learn to do that. Now, in the end, that ends up helping some people. There are some people that if, you're, if, you, act, if you treat them like family, you'll end up having a great relationship with them. In fact, if you don't treat people like family, you're going to be really lonely. You're not going to be connected. It's one of the reasons why in the church we try to find a lot of ways to get people connected. Now, during COVID, people got found out, wow, this is cool. I can do, I can do church from bed. Just flip it on, and there it is, and it's great. And every once in a while, the, you know, the lyrics on the screen are wrong, and I can text Dave or Justin and tell them, and this is awesome. But church isn't really a show. Church isn't just about you watching entertainment. Now, I'm thankful for the technology that allows like, people who have moved out of the area to still stay connected, for people who are sick or you know, have some other reason and not just, I can watch church while I'm having a football game on the TV. But we try to make opportunities in our church for people to connect with other people because part of what God wants from us are those human connections. So it's why we have coffee 
after the service and before the service too, if you need it. Um, it's why we have togethers um, for most of the year where we can get together and share a meal. It's why like coming up we, on, uh, I know people hate when I call it Halloween, but it's, we're not fooling anybody, right? Um, <laughs> but we don't, like the truth is like on October 31st, if we just bought a bunch of candy and we let people pull into the parking lot and we dumped candy into their cars, as far as those kids are concerned, it'd be the best Halloween they ever had. <laughs> but what we're doing is we're giving opportunities for people to serve and get involved. People who aren't ordinarily doing things or giving out candy from the trunk of their car. They're dressed up, having fun, doing games. There's pony rides. We have all this stuff going on, People are face painting and taking your picture and doing all this stuff. I have news for you. It's not just for the kids. That's our excuse. It's really because it gives us a chance to connect with each other. Some of us aren't real outgoing. But, I mean, like me, I'm, I'm not outgoing at all. But here I, do, I just talk to people for three services. God called me to this just to force me to do what I'm doing just to connect with people. Otherwise, I'd be fine with a book somewhere. You know? I'd be the guy watching from home. <laughs> so as a church, we have the men's ministry and the women's ministry and children's ministry. We have all sorts of opportunities for us to connect with each other because central to God's will for your life is relationships that you form within the body. And that's what this showing mercy is. That's what this kindness, if you will, is. It's a way to connect. And so, you know, I love, you know, when we have, uh, you know, the men, men's breakfast, or, you know, I love that the, when I get together with some of the ladies and talk about the women's study, or, you know, all the opportunities that we have, the, the seasoned classics ministry and everything, it's all just a way for us to be nice to each other. And that's something that God says he wants. Acting like family is something that he desires. And so he, Micah tells the people that. You're coming short in this area. God is like, yeah, I want you to do the right thing, but I'm just not into behavior modification. I want you to connect with people. I want you to have them be a part of your life. And so he wants you to, you know, do justice. He wants you to love mercy, love kinship, love connection, love being around people and with people and helping them and having them help you. But then he says, thirdly, and to walk humbly with your God. Humility was something that they absolutely lacked. Oh, they, they were great at putting on a show. They were great at throwing a big party. They were great at promoting what they were doing and what they cared about. And they, you know, they had that down. They had it dialed in. And then God looks at it and he goes, I feel like you're selling yourself out. I feel like he calls them, you know, prostitutes within the, the people of God, within the nation of Israel. He said, because you've turned this into a business. You've turned this into a scam. And so 
you know, the last thing from their minds was humility. It's so easy in our pride to promote ourselves in a way that makes it, we can pretend like we're actually promoting God when we're really we're not promoting him at all, we're promoting ourselves. You know, I've heard, it's a pretty common saying that people say, we need to make Jesus famous. No, we don't. He didn't care about being famous. He doesn't care about being famous now. He doesn't even get impressed with how many people show up or, you know, the applause or, come on, let's give a hand for Jesus. It's like, Jesus is like embarrassed by that stuff. He goes, you understand, I want a personal relationship with you. I want to work with you. I want you to work with each other. But if you don't learn humility, then you're, you're cut out from everything that I want to do. I mean, you hear very little talk about humility, partly because it's hard to talk about it because if it's like, okay, you need to be humble like who? Like me? No. But like who? As soon as you, there was the old joke about the kid who got the award for humility in Sunday school, but then they took it away from him because he wore it. You know, and it's like, But humility is something God deeply cares about, largely, not because of the value of humility, but because of the destructiveness of pride. Pride, C.S. Lewis called pride the mother of all sins. He said, pride is what made the devil the devil. And when we begin to sell out politically or spiritually, then ultimately what we do is we make pride as if it's somehow something to be celebrated. And I'm not just talking about the pride parades and all that. There are an awful lot of people who are taking shots at the pride movement, and they're proud about taking shots at the pride movement. You don't understand. Pride will destroy you, pure and simple. That's why James says in James 4, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. I think that something that we need to be thinking about a lot because, again, like, like Lewis said, pride is what made the devil the devil. I, when you, like for instance, when you talk about, um, people will often say, oh, there's a, there's a fallen pastor. It usually means the guy cheated on his wife, which is horrible and I would never excuse that, nor would I ever do that. But the truth is, As far as God's concerned, when we are lifted up with pride, when I want to impress you, when I like getting the attention, do you understand that's a way bigger sin that God talks about much more than just someone who has some moral failure? Never excuse the moral failure and the damage that it does, but what we don't understand what Micah really zooms in on is, no, you lost the battle already when you were puffed up in your pride. And now you're like, what does God want? And God's saying, I'm going to destroy you. Why? You haven't learned this basic lesson of humility. It's hard to try to be humble. You know, if I'm, if I'm trying, I can be like, okay, I'm going to try to be humble right now. I really try, and it might work for a minute, and then all of a sudden, I'm excited about how humble I am, and I just blew the whole thing. 
You don't learn humility by making yourself humble. You learn humility by facing life honestly, by facing the realities of life. God will, he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself in the sight of the Lord so that he will lift you up. This is a normal part of the Christian life, of walking with God, is that he will humble you. And then you decide, what are you going to do with that? Are you okay with that? Or are you completely in denial? Do you continue to do everything you can to pretend like everything's fine and that you're doing fine and you're going against what he tells you to do and you're not connecting with people and now you think you know better than God. Now you think you know better than everyone else. Life hurts, man. And learning humility is so painful. I hate when God has to teach me humility, but he's faithful. And so he has, throughout my life, broken my heart. Time and time again, he uses other people to do it, usually. And I have to decide, how do I respond to that? Will I join up with him with my broken heart and allow that to become a humble walk with him? Or do I, do I inoculate myself by not caring? Or do I medicate myself by finding some other you know, diversion? Or do I just go into the denial and make myself, you know, Paul Simon, I'm a rock, I'm an island, a rock feels no pain. Is that what I do? Or do I go, man, this hurts. This is killing me. But it's God inviting me to connect with him in a way that I am learning humility and the only way that I know to do it is to suffer. Jesus had to suffer in order for him to be our high priest. In order for him to understand what it's like to be us, he had to go through everything that we've been through yet without sin. And Jesus in the end was the picture of humility. He was never like, Don't you understand who I am? I'm the Messiah. No, he suffered and he didn't utter a word of protest. He, He cried out to the Father and there he was alone and suffering. And I'm telling you, there are going to be times in your life where you feel like you're alone and you're suffering and you think it might destroy you. And what it really is is God's invitation to a deeper connection with you that as you submit to that humility, as you just go, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. I'm not even sure I can take it. And he goes, that's what I've been hoping to see. That's what I've been wanting to hear. I am with you when no one else is. And again, Micah says, to walk humbly with your God. You never can possibly be more intimately connected with God than when you are humbled and broken and you're there with him and he tells you to keep moving and you know that's my God. Jacob learned that 
you know, when he was, he was pretty sure of himself, pretty cocky, sneaky guy, manipulative, had all kinds of inheritance coming to him because he was so clever. And, you know, he met an angel, the angel of the Lord, probably Jesus himself, and he wrestled with them all night long. Now, I'm thinking Jesus had some moves where he could have put them down in a second. He could have, he's wrestling with Jacob, this guy who was like a mama's boy while he was growing up. I'm sure he could have choked him out easy. But they wrestled all night. Finally, as Jacob's hip was dislocated, the angel stopped and he said, you know what? I'm changing your name from Jacob to Israel because you have wrestled with God and you have won. You and I will never win until we allow ourselves to be hurt by life and we continue to move forward. We continue to battle and we walk realizing that's my God and I'm walking with him and thanks to life, I'm walking with him with a, with a greater sense of humility and he goes, that's exactly what I wanted because your pride was killing you and your humility will save you and you're going to walk with me. Just like Jacob, you'll probably find that when you're walking with your God in humility, you're limping. You're walking and you can barely walk and he's holding you up and he goes, that's what I want. That dependence on me that brokenness that rescues you from your own pride, from your own ego, that which would have completely destroyed you. All I wanted was this, man, here we are, the two of us walking together. We figure that out. And so Micah says, hey, this is, it comes down to this. All that God is asking of you, do justly, do the right thing, no excuses, just do what's right. Show kindness or mercy. Just be that way. And not only, not only be merciful, but love it. Love to reach out to people. Love to have people reach out to you. Love to have God reach out to you with his mercy. Love mercy. And then finally, when you can't run anymore, walk in a broken humility with your God. I love that. It's, it's such a powerful thing for us to, to learn if we, if we pay attention to what's happening in life, for sure. Now, this week I was trying to reach the Kleenex box, sorry. So humiliating. <laughs> but this week, uh, I was having lunch with a friend that I hadn't seen for quite a while, and I told him, yeah, I'm speaking of Micah 680. He goes, oh, are you going to do the song? I had totally forgot about the song. You know, back in the day, you know, back in Calvary, way back in the dark ages, our, our worship was like we would do hymns on Sunday morning that most people knew. We had those hymn books. But then on Sunday nights, we would just sing choruses. Chuck would lead them. And there were, most of them were scripture verses that somebody just put to a simple tune. 
And one of the songs that we used to sing was Micah 6, 8. And it's a way, for those of you who are old enough to remember, it'll bring back a lot of memories. But so anyway, this guy goes, so you're going to do the song? And I'm like, oh, man. And I thought, to sing that song and teach it to you and sing it in a cappella, that's really humbling. But I thought, wow, that would be kind of stupid to not do it for that reason. So the song goes like this, and then there's kind of an echo part of it, too, that I'll teach you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humiliate you along with me. But the song goes, and I'll change the these to use to go with the, the New King James. But he has shown you, oh, man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. He has shown you, oh, man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. So, and you could hear somebody singing the echo. So it goes, the girls usually echo in like it's like, he has shown you, he has shown you, oh man, oh man. Then together, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And then, but to do justly, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to love mercy, and together, and to walk humbly with thy God. So let's sing it. (laughs) Help me out here. He has shown you. Oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, he has shown you. Oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Now, for my old school heart, that's what I call worship. (laughs) Maybe you sing that during the week and remind yourself of the truths of the scripture. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth that boils down our relationship with you in such a beautiful and simple way, but a way that threatens us. We don't always want to do the right thing. We don't always want to connect with others. And we don't always want to walk in humility and with a limp. But we want to walk with our God. And apparently this is the way you do it. So we submit ourselves to you and ask that you would work in our hearts and our lives and in a great way, draw us to the center of what it is that you really want for us because we know you don't want this for you. You want it for us. You love us. And so may we walk in that love. In Jesus' name, amen.